episode 59 and part two of the moon landing 50th anniversary series I'm doing and I am Travis DeRose and this is part two of the of the moon landing 50th anniversary and I got on Cy Liebergott he was actually there for the Apollo missions in mission control working as the lead e-com flight controller um, specifically for the Apollo missions 12 through 15, but he did a whole bunch of stuff. He worked on uh, a lot of the other Apollo missions. Uh, and if you've ever seen Apollo 13, the movie with Tom Hanks, he was portrayed by Clint Howard in that movie, Ron Howard's brother. So he got to work with Ron Howard and Clint Howard and, uh, you know, help them make that movie and tell his story. So it's pretty cool. He was there. Uh, he kind of made the call. He did make the call on Apollo 13 to not land on the moon and instead uh, change the focus of the mission to just returning the crew safely back to Earth. He's the one who, who really had to make that call. He's the one who said to stir the tanks, which caused the, uh, the explosion. And uh, Cy talks about all this stuff. So it's, it's really cool. I'm, I was very excited to talk to him. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is Cy Liebergott in episode 59, the part two of the moon landing 50th anniversary series on curiosityness. Okay, let's go. And boom, we're going. How you doing, Cy? Hi, hi. Good morning, Travis. Good morning. Or good afternoon, I should say. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of still morning here, but, uh, but we're close. Where are you looking? Are you on the West Coast? Yeah, I'm in L.A. area. Oh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw some coverage last night of the uh, Street of Horrors in San Francisco and and in uh, L.A. Oh, what is uh, that? The homeless and the tents. And oh. I saw some really, really just were distressful. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, and this lady uh, who was an activist, she says she was trying to get a hold of the the uh, councilmen and the state legislatures, and they don't answer, uh, you know, it's not their backyard. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's tough. There's a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I, here in Long Beach, we live right by the, the beach and there's a park. But uh, every morning I see the same guys and say hello to them and stuff. And, you know, they seem to be seem to be living their life and enjoying as much as they can. So. Well, you know, Hawaii's got the same problem. They live on the beach. <laughs> 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 and of course, cost of living there is a lot different. That's true. Uh, that is true. Well, enough of how bad the uh, the world looks. What's uh, yeah. on your mind? <laughs> I was not expecting to go there, but uh, yeah, I mean, thanks well, for being on, taking the time. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's part of life. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we got the the fiftieth anniversary of the moon landing coming up, so I know you're you're busy with that. Yeah, there's been a lot of. Around wanting, uh, and I, I try to do what I can. But uh, in fact, I got a <clears throat> got a note from a, a friend of mine. I, I appeared for him in Zurich 
Switzerland about three years ago, and he says, what am I doing on July 20th? And I says, well, I'm trying to get out of a reunion uh, that we're having here, and I, I feel guilty if I don't go, but uh, if you've got me a better deal, <laughs> I'll be in Switzerland. <laughs> so, but that's, and there's just another thing that's, uh, there's a London Space Center that that has created a little tour for four of us flight controllers to go to London and then go over to Toulouse, France, you know, for it's a six day thing. Wow. And that's lots of paying gigs, so I can't complain. You're <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. I mean, you still get to do stuff like that. Do you enjoy kind of, you know, sharing, you know, you know, meeting these people and kind of sharing your story and stuff still, or is it? Well, I've been professionally speaking for about 12 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, things have, you know, as time has gone by, it's kind of tapered down. Yeah. So, you know, I would do do like a half a dozen a year. And uh, it, it was not bad. It's always fun to tell the stories and, I got about half a dozen talks that I can give with uh, PowerPoint slides and nice. audio and all that. And uh, it's been, it's been fun. Cool. It's been to, to go over to a foreign or a new uh, 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 lecture site and find out that they're not prepared. They don't have the equipment or the equipment's failed. <laughs> so you ought, see, you ought to see what I take with me in my uh, computer bag. I mean, circuit testers, 40, 50 feet of, uh, uh, of cables. Oh, my gosh. Everything is based upon a failure. Yep. <laughs> really walk around. But yeah. they do that. They just, they're just, they're not prepared. They think they are, but they're not. And uh, I always had my computer go down. I, I was up in, uh, where the hell was I? I was up in uh, Vermont somewhere doing this Burr Academy school. Anyway, so they wanted me to, give a talk in their little theater that they had. It was an old lecture hall. And uh, Jerry Carr, our Skylab, one of our Skylab astronauts, was living up there. And so he wanted, he said, they asked him to give a talk. Also, I said, well, you can use my, my laptop. You know, I'll put it up on the stage extension right behind us. And uh, uh, you can put your CD on it. And, you know, it's. So we, uh, fortunately, the battery was fully charged because the techs, Brought me out a power cable, laid down, I plugged my computer in. There's no power on that cable. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice of them. And what I said is, I had about five minutes of uh, battery power left, and I didn't find out the next morning. <laughs> so I have a circuit tester I take with me now. And, right. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I gave me a power cable with no. Uh... Anyway, so that's it's always been, a, it's, it's been fun. Yes. It's been fun. There's always challenges and everything, huh? Yeah, especially when you go overseas. And now, now you got a real. Uh, there's a there's another little gadget that you might uh, keep around. It's called an op amp. It's really a headset amplifier. Is all it is. And uh -huh. A couple of my slides. Try as I, I'm, I'm, I did with this little application. I got. I couldn't balance the sound level in it to balance with the rest of the slide audios, and that, that just drove me crazy. <laughs> So I, I noticed that somebody said, hey, you've got to get an op amp. And what it is, is you put this little tiny uh, amplifier, probably want to go one chip at it, and uh, uh, you can control the sound yourself. It's in between the output of your laptop, your audio output, and the, um, and the input to their sound system. 
Oh. I, if I have a slide or something happens where they screw up, I can just readjust the uh, volume myself. It's another gadget, which you you, you got to carry with you in order to not have a problem. Yeah, really. But most of the RS don't have to worry about it. They carry around a little, a little uh, memory stick, and they figure everything's going to be taken care of for them. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Find out it's not true. <laughs> but they expect it. Yep. I expect nothing. Anyway. Um, Yes. Well, let's yeah. Let's get well, to some yeah, uh, some Apollo we stuff. Apollo 11, 50th anniversary coming up, and everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. They're making documentaries, and uh, uh, this thing on the uh, uh, National uh, Space Center, whatever it's called in London, is uh, doing a thing on Apollo 10. So we'll do a lot of uh, Q and A stuff like that. Around for people and students, so that's Apollo 10. Ten, and we had a uh, a guy from Science Channel doing something from UK. Also, well, you, we have a lot of fans in UK. It's amazing. They're probably better fans over there for our space program than here. Oh. that surprised me. Interesting. Oh, yeah, it's it's the way it is. <laughs> uh, so uh, <clears throat> he called up and he wanted to do this. Uh, a thing on Apollo 13. I said, well, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. So I remember looking at him, I said, now let me I said, this is the thing that, that NBC did years ago. It's a, it's a, it's an hour long show, TV show, and it's broken into four segments or four topics. Mm-hmm. And one of the topics is Apollo 13 for you, right? He says, yes. I said, well, this was done years ago uh, in the old control center. And I remember looking at the, at the NBC producer and I said, uh, uh, how long is this segment going to run? He says, without the commercials, 12 minutes. I said, you're going to tell the story of Apollo 13 in 12 minutes? <laughs> he says, sure. He says, sorry, masters of triviality. And I was, you sure? <laughs> so, oh, my God. That's what they did. Wow. Okay, so what's your, do you have a, a favorite uh, or best documentary or, or program that you, th- that you have that's documented, um, you know, the Apollo era at NASA? Yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> the, the the premier uh, Apollo 13, if you want to talk about Apollo 13, uh, uh, documentary that was done. It was done by PBS, mm-hmm. KCBH in uh, uh, Boston, I guess it was, mm-hmm. years ago. And um, they did. They went about it. They had a whole hour. It was PBS. In fact, they actually won some awards with it. And, uh, uh, and I remember, I can't remember the name of the producer. He says, uh, we're looking for storytellers. Kranz is a storyteller, and he says, you're a storyteller, and I can't find enough storytellers because, you know, they, they'll switch back to the real people from the documentary, and they will tell a little attitude or something. Mm-hmm. He said, he said, I went to the, the retrofire officer that was there, Chuck Dietrich, and I went to him, you know, Texas boy, and I said, how did it feel when you had to plan the return and you had to watch out that you stayed on course, blah, blah, blah. And Chuck, Chuck just looked at him, this guy, producer said, he said, hey, man, I was just doing my job. No, no, tell me what was going through your mind. I mean, you had to think of a lot of things, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hey, man, I was just doing my job. It just drove this producer crazy. I just <laughs> doing my job. Not a storyteller. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, oh, man. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. This an old, no, no, very smart country boy turned out to be a good engineer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, PBS, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. 
No, I don't think I've seen that, but I'm going to look uh, that up. Let me see if I can find the actual title of it, because if you haven't got that in your collection, you can still buy it on, I think, Amazon. Okay. I mean, we're talking 20 years. Okay. And let me see if I still have... I, I can never remember... Uh, I can never remember the name of these things. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there's a bunch of documentaries that have been made on this that involve you. Is this the one? Yeah, this is it. You can still, you can still get it. Okay, to the edge and back. Yeah. Okay. Because I, what I get confused is I did a, a, a CD documentary for Arts and Letters years ago, and it was called, uh, it was called something like this, and I always get it confused. That was called, they're out of business sale, Hall 13, uh, where is it? A race against time. So <laughs> but this one's still available. This is this is the uh, the documentary on Paul Thirteen. Okay, cool. So yeah. Uh, so for people listening, it's uh, Apollo Thirteen to the Edge and Back PBS yeah. on KCBH Amazon. Has seen on public television, and I bought a couple extra one of these in uh, from Amazon just to have in my collection. Okay, but. Sweet. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, if you don't have it in your collection, you're foolish. <laughs> you're deficient. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's talk about you, Sai. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. They're, they're, yeah, that's what's so cool about it. It's so well documented. But, I mean, it was it was that just is. 50 years ago. But does it does it feel like it's been 50 years ago since all this happened? No. You'll find this as you get older. I'm 83 now, and it's really crazy because you look over telescoped i mean really does feel like it wasn't just yesterday but just more recent than it should be Mm -hmm. it's amazing what happens to the sense of time but it's true it really happens which is probably pretty good because you've got something to reminisce about while you're rocking on the you know on the front porch (laughs) (laughs) while you're rocking on the front porch yeah (laughs) <laughs> anyway so there you are so that's uh that's something you, you probably ought to have yeah um uh, it's unfortunate the other call 13 thing we did the guy went out of business and he did it he 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 did it on an old-fashioned well, it was an old-fashioned 32-bit word instead of 64-bit which, which we use now mm-hmm it's not it, it's not compatible with 64 bit so it's, uh, it's oh just, my gosh and so these, these cds sit there and there's nothing to do about it except uh uh recompile the executive uh, program of the thing and nobody's gonna do that yeah <laughs> too bad Jeez. anyway there's a lot of great anecdotes in this stuff i one of the things we put on that 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 uh, that other cd was uh is, uh, typically, you get a lot of postcards and letters and requests for um, for pictures and all that. Which I don't do any autographs from from home. Nothing, zero. Yeah, I found out it was a bad idea, and it is a bad idea. Once people <laughs> out that you know that you will sign, you'll be inundated. Just, oh, jeez. You know, I got my Boy Scout troop, and I can you send me forty copies of this photo, please. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, this kid sent me a handwritten letter. I guess he was 12 years old at the time. How he really enjoyed the program. And he wrote, nice letter. Mm-hmm. All in cursive. 
which I think we're they're going to teach again in the schools. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that's right. A lot of people don't know how to cursive writing anymore. So anyway, um, uh, he sent me a really nice letter. We put that in the CD. We took a photograph of it and put it in the CD as some you know, miscellaneous stuff that was interesting. And the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, programmers decided they wanted to go find this kid. I mean, this is 20 years later. Uh-huh. And they found him in Buffalo, Chicago. Somebody's working for uh, for one of these ticket uh, companies. Right. <laughs> wow. I just couldn't believe it. Anyway, that's kind of nice to to know that he he uh, took the technical stuff to heart and, and yeah. pursued it. Went for Ticketron, is what it was. Oh, okay. And that's so, that's, anyway. that's on the the to the edge and back documentary. No, oh. it's not. Unfortunately, it's on this other one. Oh, uh, the one that we can't watch. Yeah, you can't. It won't play on your computer or anything unless you got a thirty-bit uh, machine. Not me. Machines. And some people do. They have old machines, so they can play this stuff. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got a whole bunch of. Uh, I had a contract with the company. It was called Arts and Letters. They're still in business, but unfortunately, the owner died, sold it. They're not interested in space. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so I, what I would do, since he couldn't afford to pay me my fee for our contract, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just every time I needed a half a dozen copies of this, and he would cut me half a dozen copies, and I'd sell them at the autograph, the uh, autograph uh, conventions or something. Right. <laughs> what a shame. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, uh, that that uh, this CD is a real collector's item. It turns out my uh, my uh, my book is a collector's item now. If, if you can find a hardback, brand new that's signed, it's going to cost you at least one hundred fifty bucks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How's that feel that, to have your signature worth so much? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is a guy uh, that sells memorabilia. His name is Steve Hankow. He's in L.A. Uh-huh. He's in Paris. And he's got a number of signed copies of the hardback, which he'll sell a lot cheaper than that. Oh, okay. Cool. If that's, I think, well, yeah, he's, 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 he's one of the uh, memorabilia sellers that you can trust. He really knows his stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised. There's another book, which I, I think I told you about, it was called uh, uh, Apollo Race to the Moon by Charles Murray and his wife, mm-hmm. Kathleen Cox. It's uh, the definitive book of how we how we went to the moon. Okay, uh, absolutely the definitive book. He's, he, he, you know, he said he was a he is a conservative social scientist, PhD, MIT, and uh, uh, people who are not conservative hate his guts because he uh, he says things that they don't like to talk about. <laughs> I see. Yeah, he's a scientist. Yeah, <laughs> and for some odd reason, he and his wife decided that they would write a book about how we got to the moon. Right, and it took five years, and he, uh, uh, and he was about finished with it about in five. But he interviewed everybody that had anything to do with the design and development of what it took to get to the moon, hardware wise, testing wise, and if the people had died, he would talk to people who knew those people. So he's got as complete a book as you can get, but in an anecdotal manner, which is a lot more fun to read. Right. 
got one astronaut in it. Oh, okay. Mike Collins, you know, he was our CMP of Paul Levin. He <clears throat> he reviewed the book because he has a very good book, which I don't I don't read astronaut books. <laughs> Why bother? <laughs> and, you know, well, there's no reason to. I mean, they don't know what we did, and we know what they did. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. As far as they were concerned, we were just part of the the vast infrastructure in the ground that pointed them at the moon. Oh, wow. We're, we flight controllers are nothing special to most of them. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But anyway, he, he, he reviewed the book uh, and told Charles Mary, he says, you know, it's a very good book, but he says, there's no astronauts in it. <laughs> that was the point. Right. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so I never thought about that. Terrific. It just, that was the definitive book. Uh, and and we we'll also asked we flight controllers what the uh, uh, what the mission was that really was exciting and important to us, and it was Apollo eight. Oh, really? And the answer comes back. Well, what about Apollo eleven? Well, Apollo eleven was just the culmination of a of a of a well designed test program. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that Apollo eight was just a we needed to get the moon before the Russians were. They were close yeah. until they blew up their rockets. Uh, and Apollo 8 was an anomaly because we just needed to get to the moon before they did. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Yeah. So anyway, um, but but Apollo 11 was just the, the culmination of all the testing we did. We did Apollo 7 to test the, the, the spacecraft and certain of the systems in Earth orbit was safe. Uh, 8 was... An anomaly nine. We uh, we was an Earth orbit mission where we tested the uh, the uh, lunar module and the spacecraft together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set the uh, lunar module. We separated and redocked and right and all that was that was exciting. And then Apollo uh, uh, ten. We went to the moon. We went into lunar orbit. We went within six miles of the surface and didn't land. Mm-hmm. Apollo eleven. We landed. Yep. We couldn't have done Apollo 10 anyway because the the lunar module didn't have the uh, the power to do it, and, and it was too, it was heavy, uh-huh. so we couldn't have done it anyway. It was, but it was Apollo 11 was just the culmination of all that. Yeah, so eight was a, an anomaly as far as the test program was concerned. So okay, so yeah, can you clarify? I guess I'm a little confused. Like, why was eight an anomaly? Because it didn't, it wasn't part of the carefully thought out. A sequential program to get to the landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. We just stuck it in there because we we got worried that the Russians are going to beat us to the moon. I see. Okay. <laughs> we didn't have a lunar module. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we're asking, you know, what happens if we had an Apollo thirteen failure like we had on Apollo thirteen on Apollo eight? This is what they would have been dead within three and a half hours. Yeah. We didn't have a unused storehouse of consumables that we could eke out to get us back home. Okay. I see. That was a guts mission, as we say. (laughs) I mean, we just, uh, I remember I was so excited about that back in those days. I was, uh, I was side saddling or training. It's my last training mission. And, uh, when the, uh, you know, the, we were really, Stressed out because we wanted to make sure that the crew got into lunar orbit. They had to fire the big service propulsion engine to slow us down and be captured by the moon. And we would know that if they came out of the the backside of the moon at a certain time. We got 
our signal back. Right. And right on the second. Yeah. And I was so excited. I stood up and yelled and screamed into the air because I could. I didn't. I had discipline not to put it on the intercom. <laughs> I just screamed the right as loud as I could. <laughs> we did. That was yeah. all. Uh, any of any of your uh, uh, listeners, you, they, you've got to get through your head that everything we have done in space is purely politics. Hmm. You know, in my book, you'll read, uh, I got, in fact, before the, late in the writing of my book, I got it uh, from the Johnson Space Center historian. He had just gotten a CD of a, of a talk and the transcript of the talk between John Kennedy and, uh, uh, and our administrator at the time, Webb. Mm-hmm. And they were arguing about, the, about what the NASA budget ought to be. We hadn't gone anywhere yet. We had done Mercury, and uh, and Kennedy was and, he, and Webb were, were arguing about what ought to come first. And, and Webb said, "Well, I think we ought to do we ought to set our priorities and do low Earth orbit first, and, and then go to the moon." And uh, Kennedy looked at uh, Webb and he says. No, we're going to go to the moon first and do our overthrow after that. Because uh-huh. he says, because all I care about is meeting the Russians. Otherwise, I don't care about space. Man. In my book, I got the transcript. That's incredible. <laughs> it was always politics. Yeah. We do is politics about them. People got to understand that if it wasn't about that, the politicians wouldn't do anything. Wow. So, you know, after Apollo 11, there was talk among politicians they wanted to end the program right there mm-hmm. you know this thing you say there we did it now let's just get out of here before we kill somebody man that's exactly what happened and so they agreed on ending the program uh, the scientists really raised hell mm-hmm. uh, we had three missions that we didn't use so they didn't care wow man, all, sudden, did- all they cared about was Politics Just covering the Russians. Place. That is crazy. Well, have you, why do you think? Well, here's other stories about that. We had uh, who was Nelson was a senator. They got the fly on shuttle, and there was another one that got the fly on shuttle. It was purely payback, political payback. Oh my gosh! Yeah, John Glenn flew on shuttle at 77 years old. Uh-huh. I saw him over in the neutral buoyancy facility, the big pool where they were training. Or, uh, zero gravity, and he could barely walk. Mm-hmm. But they put him on shuttle because he had a payback coming from what he did for the Democrats. Politics. My God. Yeah, you know, there's nothing starry-eyed about what we've accomplished. I'm sorry. So what do you what do you what do you think about what's going on today? Then with you know, kind of the seems like we're on track to to get some humans on mars do you think this is similarly uh you know like fueled by politics or is it something else well political the political consideration will speed it up okay (laughs) there is no political consideration except they're just kind of humming along you know at a slow pace Uh Uh, ryan's not ready ryan won't be ready for a while uh there's no driving force to make them get it done. Um, we had a space station that I worked on uh, in 1980, and I referenced this in my book. Mm-hmm. In 1979, 
this guy named Al Levere's engineer, uh, pulled about 40 of us together who had slack time on our hands into a building in the back of the lot, as we say, and and say, I pulled you together. We're going to write a program plan for a space station. It's going to do everything. Mars is going to be, a, it's going to be, a, and you got to keep this in mind, it's going to be a transportation node. In other words, it's not there to satisfy a bunch of scientists work on their little nano-sized experiments. It's going to be a transportation node, and we're going to build upper stages, and we're going back to the moon, and we're going to, and we're going to go to Mars. Wow. That's what we're going to do. Uh-huh. And we worked on it from 1980 to 1986. We had the program office uh, at Johnson Space Center, and then a couple of NASA guys decided, who really didn't like Johnson Space Center, I don't think, and they got it moved. The program moved to Washington. I mean, Washington couldn't design a paper sack. I mean, it was just, <laughs> uh, it was, and that was purely politics. Yeah. These guys wanted to form their own NASA Center in Reston, Virginia, which is Washington, as far as I'm concerned. And they halted six years of work we had done on this. The wealth expensive space station and stopped. 146 of us went back to work. Our home offices and, and all that knowledge, the surf knowledge went away. Wow. And started all over again. In eight years dollars and produced nothing but paper and then Abby who used to be our center director when he became center director rather uh, had a lot of influence and he just he just moved it back to Johnson Space Center but it was too late and then the US met politics and then what happened I guess Clinton was uh, president at the time and then what happened was is that in order to have our space station we had to involve the international community mm-hmm. which means which meant moving the space station from an orbited inclination of 28 and a half degrees, which is essentially around the equator for launches from the Cape, Kennedy, up to 51.6 degrees, so it'd be over Europe. Oh. Now you have reduced the, pay- the payload lift capability of a shuttle by about two-thirds. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was the end of... That was the beginning of the International Space Station and the end of having a space station as a transportation node. I see. Okay. Politics. Yeah. Man, oh, man. And the rest, so we'll help you. Uh, and then they canceled the shuttle program, which is insane. Yeah. But uh, they said, we can't afford to do, see, there's money. We can't afford to do a $500 million launch of the shuttle and then build a space station and maintain it. Yeah. So. G.W. Bush said, okay, we're going to cancel the space station, which canceled the shuttle, which uh, uh, President Obama followed through on. Yeah. And that was the end of that. And we had to go suck up to the Russians to charge us uh, at the beginning, about $20 million a seat oh, on use, And now it's like over $80 million a seat. They make money. They make money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what do you think about the more commercial side of things that's coming along now? Well, you got to keep in mind what's, what's the two uh, programs: SpaceX and which, uh, uh, Musk, and who is the other? The other one is it Blue Origins that we're thinking of with yeah, Bezos? But they're both they're both uh, fairly successful, mm-hmm. but half of the cost of that is being paid by NASA. <laughs> oh, not, I didn't realize that. Okay, they're not they're not paying for it themselves. You got to be kidding. <laughs> 
Whew. So anyway, so that's where we are. We're, we're down to low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working in a space station. This friend of mine uh, who's a scientist just gets angry at me when I point it out. I said, tell me what you have produced to advance the program of going into space. Tell me what you've done. I said, most of the science that's going on up there are nano-sized experiments that you scientists can write up and put on your CV <laughs> and look good. Mm-hmm. But you, all you're doing is spending a lot of time in zero gravity. Uh, you're proving that we can live in space. Yeah. But let me let me ask you a question. If we're going on a nine month one way trip to Mars, uh, what do you what are you guys doing to prove that we can do medicine in space? Right. You're going to ask Peter if we can sacrifice a squirrel monkey to test out equipment. To, for surgery in zero gravity. Yeah. Can I do that? <laughs> no. Right. <laughs> Are we building upper stages on orbit so we can go to Mars? Uh-huh. No. Man. Crazy. Uh, it's easy to be cynical about it. I am. Yeah. People <laughs> get upset at me because when I give a talk, I, I, I anecdotalize a little bit. Yeah. Uh, which I did in one of our local libraries. And a couple of the guys who are still active working on space station came over and he says, you shouldn't talk about NASA like that. I said, why do you not talk about NASA like that? I said, well, my book is warts and all. When I give a talk, it's warts and all. Yeah. No, you shouldn't do that. You should make sure that NASA looks as good as possible. I said, I'm sorry. It ain't going to work that way. Not for me. Right. Really got angry at me because there are people that thinks uh, one of the attractions of what I've got to say is because it's, there's, it's warts and all. Yeah, and, uh, I like it. No, I like to hear your your perspective, and it's and, um, but the the astronauts don't want to hear it, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, our scientist friends don't want to hear it. Yeah, it's it's a shame. I mean, I got anecdotes in my book that never make another uh, another book. God forbid. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you an anecdote. That I, unfortunately, I made the mistake of giving it one of this real early. Photograph conventions, uh, and I asked this guy. I said, "Why don't you let me? You always have a last one. I get up there at the dinner, and I said they're always talking about how wonderful life is and all that. Why don't you ask? Let me give a talk before dinner. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't it good? There is. I told the anecdote about Bruce McCandless. It was it was a uh, screw up. Bruce McCandless, God love him, was not born with common sense, <laughs> and. Uh, but as I said, I well, as I said, my book. Uh, but he showed us all because he flew the EMU the first time. Mm-hmm. You know those famous pictures of him standing out the out in the middle of nowhere. He he really was a good engineer, but he didn't have any common sense. Right. And his he he was he was he pulled a lot of Capcom duty. The the unfortunate thing was his his Capcom console was right next to my console in the control room. Uh huh. The ecom console, and uh, he just did stuff, just threw me, threw me crazy. <laughs> and uh, anyway, what what he did was, and I put this, I, I and I gave this little talk. I thought it was going to be rather humorous for everybody. Turns out the astronauts were sitting there stern faced when I told the anecdote uh, about Bruce. Uh, they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was we had a a, a block of forty eight uh, cubic foot sized 
lockers mm-hmm. for our headsets. So we didn't carry them all the way back to the office. <laughs> when we were done with a shift, you're done with a with a simulation, we combination lock and we threw them in there and go back to our offices. Right. And they had serial numbers on them. They had you know, A25, A26, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I came in one day for simulations, one of the final simulations we had. And in the middle of this block of 48 headset lockers was one of the doors had a yellow plastic diamond marker, you know, the plastic label makers mm-hmm. that make embossed labels. And it said Capcom locker. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, it's got to be mechanless. Right. Nobody would not know their three-digit number uh, for their uh, for their headset locker. Uh-huh. So I went down to supply and I got a Dymo marker, a label maker, yeah. yellow tape, and I made 47 more labels that said <laughs> Capcom locker. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I let... I let Al Shepard know because it's Apollo 14 coming up. Uh-huh. And I, Big Al, we had a he he played the uh, the game of you reset me or I'll I'll kill your firstborn child. Oh my thing. Jeez. That's what, they acted that way. Uh-huh. And the old scared Al Shepard because that was the military. You know, don't let them get to know you because they won't fear you anymore. Yeah. So anyway, so I told Al what I was going to do. So. Uh, the day before uh, our shift uh, for uh, Apollo 11, uh, Apollo 14, rather, came, <clears throat> I got there early and I put all 47 lockers, other lockers had Capcom locker on it. Yeah. And I had other ones that said, this way, the Capcom console, in case you don't know. And I, <laughs> I you know, showed you where this is a Capcom console. This is it. Right and left armrest, just in case oh, you get dude, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce knew I did it. Uh-huh. I mean, he fumed. You ever see a little black cloud above somebody's head when they're fuming? Right. <laughs> he was fuming. So we did TLI, you know, the translunar injection burn to go to the moon. And we were on our way to the moon. They pulled the, they had pulled the uh, lunar module out. And Big Al voices down, hey, Bruce, you have any problem finding your headset locker today? <laughs> he was, I shamed him in front of the whole world. And let me tell you, when I told that anecdote at that convention, the astronauts were not smiling. Oh, how my God. Dare I, how I dare I tell a bad story about one of their own. Yeah. Oh, I love that. The, like, the inner office, like, pranks and that's stuff. That's hilarious. Book. That's my book. And I told these guys that criticized. I said, it's my book. Mm-hmm. It's my stories. And that's what's, going to, that's what's in the book. Tough luck. Right. Go write your own book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway. Like yeah, that was my uh, favorite. My favorite, uh, and I never did take a picture of the headset lockers. I can't believe I didn't do that. But I was just intent upon the joke, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's yeah let's jump back a little bit to your you know your time at at NASA and stuff and working at um, ecom. So I mean, what what is an ecom? What is that? What what was your position? What were you responsible for? Well, back during Mercury, uh, they were just in the, in the early throes of trying to figure out what everybody should be doing and how we should be flying in space. And, mm-hmm. and they did have a systems guy, a systems guy. And I became an ECOM, and also they became a GNC. The ECOM was, uh, was uh, 
responsible for monitoring about half of spacecraft systems. And essentially, they're the life, life support systems. Mm-hmm. All the electricity, uh, uh, the fuel cells, the cryogenics, uh, uh, many of the mechanical systems, and, and, it, and the GNC, Guidance Navigation Control Guy, who sat next to me in the front room, he was in charge of the jets and the rockets and, and the computers and, uh, uh, and the computer hardware, rather, not the programming, but the hardware itself. Mm-hmm. And so they were, it worked out really well. It became uh, that way probably late Mercury, early in Gemini. Gemini's where these, these positions, and we, and we developed the back room uh, expert console systems guys in the back room that had better uh, analytic capability and mm-hmm. specialized knowledge. Where we in the uh, in the front room, the mission operations control room, had more of a not an overview knowledge. We we had detailed knowledge too. Mm-hmm. It's like a flight director who was in charge of all of us had enough knowledge to ask the right questions and, or ask questions in particular. Right. So it was kind of hierarchical, and, and uh, so if uh, if one of my backroom guys says we got a problem with fuel cell one, I would know exactly what he's trying to tell me, and when he starts explaining it, and what the the mission rule implications were, the mission implications were, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it became it became a very important position as far as in my case the uh, when uh, when I, I came down. Came down to Houston in 1964. I was working for North, believe it, North American, which became North American Rockwell, who was building the spacecraft. I was watching the Apollo spacecraft being built out of manufacturing all that time. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was incredible. I was yeah. finishing up school, which I did. And, uh, and then uh, a friend of mine who was ahead of me, Larry Cannon, said, uh, hey, they formed up a, a flight operations group here at Rockwell down in California <clears throat> that and, and their job is to be support to support NASA at Houston with with information about the spacecraft technical information whatever drawings whatever whatever is required and uh, and I said boy that sounds interesting and then he said and and we're going to most of the group is going to go down to Houston and uh, I forget it was uh, in, a, in a year Mm-hmm. And I wasn't willing. I had a family, and I, so I wasn't willing to lose or anything. So I, I joined the group. I got hired by the group. They put me in charge of two losers, two guys who didn't want to be in Downey, California. They wanted me back in, Cal- in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they were really difficult to deal with. And I was their lead engineer. And so finally, after about a year and a half of that, I said, I'm out of here. I need to go where the action's closer. So I moved down to, and my family down to, uh, Houston in July fourth, nineteen sixty four. I had I forgot how hot and wet Houston could have ever been. It was like <laughs> a wet blanket. You know, if you're coming from LA, yeah. So uh, I, I remember driving down in, in my little sixty two Volkswagen, which is a piece of crap. Uh, I never realized <laughs> Volkswagens were a take good of a machine. And I got down there. The family flew down, and I drove down. And I, I didn't realize I was getting injured. I, I drove, I left at midnight, I remember, and I got to El Paso. It's about 1,600 miles from L.A. to Houston. Mm-hmm. I, got to, I got to El Paso, and the guy, I was getting gas, and the guy reminded me, he says, you know, you're only halfway to Houston. 
you still have over 700 miles to go. Wow, man. <laughs> they realized how big youth Texas was. Yeah. I drove 16 hours to get to El Paso. It was only halfway to Houston. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, I did all that. I got to Houston. I said, boy, what a hick town this is. Boy, I was like, <laughs> those words. it's not a hick town anymore. Now we have yeah. every bit of traffic problems as L.A. had then and has now. Really? Oh, yeah. Just grew leaps and bounds. Yeah. Strip centers, just like L.A., mm-hmm. everything. So anyway, so uh, I got to do that. We were in temporary quarters. Well, the Johnson Space Center was uh, actually, was well, the Manned Spacecraft Center at the time, was being constructed in this this uh, farm field. <laughs> and um, uh, and I guess in the next week, we moved quarters at, in, in now called Johnson Space Center. And uh, that became the thing. And then I discovered what it meant to be a, a contractor. Back in those days, you were not only NASA employees were permitted to, uh, to, to occupy the key positions, like especially like in the mission control room that you see, mission operations control room. Yeah. Contractors were expected to be in the back room somewhere. Okay. And uh, I got, I remember I was. Uh, Operating the uh, our very first, first mission was AS Apollo Saturn two hundred one, which is a 38 minute lob down range to test out the the big engine and the chutes and stuff like that. And uh, I caught the flu, I think, or, or it was really bad cold, and I was out for a week. And they ran simulations every day during that week mm-hmm. training. Came back, I came in, sat down on my console in the back room, and this guy. Mort Silver <clears throat> was the GNC guy. Uh, he worked for you know uh, North America as well. And I said, "Hey, Mort, geez, uh, my brother to be back here." I says, "Did Dave Penley was the acting ecom out in the front room?" Yeah. And he was so. I, I leaned over the morning. I said, did, "Did Dave Penley ever call me for any information while I was gone?" And, and Mort looked at me. He says, "Not once." <laughs> what? That's when I figured, that's when I figured that I was not useful working in the back room, at least yeah. back in the. So I applied to to to, to uh, switch over to NASA, and and I did. Uh, January sixty six, nineteen sixty six, and I became my career as a as a NASA employee. Yeah, and uh, and a flight controller. Well, right. was a, I mean, barely knew what a flight controller was. And I, I spent my time. I, I ended up uh, becoming an operations procedures officer. I had to worry about all the proper paperwork in the front room. I did that. And then I uh, became a uh, an assistant flight director for a while and decided that wasn't for me. And then I switched over to become a systems engineer or an ECOM. Mm-hmm. That was the best decision I ever made. I put my time in. I've, I've worked just about every position except the flight dynamics stuff. And uh, then my career really started uh, when I became a full-fledged uh, e-com on Apollo 8, Apollo 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And then I switched out of there so one of my backroom guys, NASA guys, could get some console time, Billy Moon, hmm. and finished up. Uh, we swapped. I went to the, uh, what they call this, spacecraft analysis room which was a bridge between the engineering world and the flight flight operations world it's kind of an interesting thing to do mm-hmm. and uh so billy worked uh, 15 16 17 he got his his licks in and 
Heck, he got promoted more often than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So are there, when you're working uh, as an e-com, are there, there's multiple shifts and multiple people working on the console, correct? And you guys are switching out during a mission at least? Three eight-hour shifts. Three eight-hour shifts, okay. Interesting, interesting. So, and then I, I, I think I read this on your website that, you talked about the e-composition having, you know, a lot of tradition and professionalism and, and kind of associated with that. What was that kind of like to go into? Uh, let me see. Um, after the Apollo 1 fire, pad fire, Gene Kranz, ever the leader, decided that we needed words to live by. Mm-hmm. And they came up with the foundations. Uh, mission control. Oh. And it's a leadership statement. It says, uh, Foundation of Mission Control, to instill within ourselves these qualities essential for professional excellence. Discipline, being able to follow as well as lead, knowing we must master ourselves before we can master our task. Competence, there being no substitute for total preparation and complete dedication, for space will not tolerate the careless, carelessness or indifferent. Confidence, believing in ourselves as well as others, knowing we must master fear and hesitation before we can see. There are guys that they, when I when I would explain the job to them, they said, well, I think I like to be a flight controller. I said, okay, let me tell you what you got to be able to do. You have, you, at the very least, you have to be able to make complicated decisions under a great deal of pressure yeah. in front of the world. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Will I do that? No. I said, okay. <laughs> anyway, responsibility. Realizing that it to us or it belongs to each of us. We must answer for what we do or fail to do. Yeah. Toughness. This is where Kranz gets his tough and competent statement he wrote on our boards. Uh-huh. Taking a stand when we must to try again and again, even if it means following a more difficult path. Teamwork, respecting and utilizing the ability of others, realizing that we work toward a common goal for success depends upon the efforts of all. These are incredible words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a couple of side notes, which I like to put out, to always be aware that suddenly and unexpectedly we may find ourselves in a role where our performance has ultimate consequences. <laughs> to recognize that the greatest error is not to have tried and failed, but in trying, we do not give it our best effort. Oh, yeah. Incredible words. Yeah, I like that. That's incredible. He and, uh, he and uh, Pete Frank, another flight director, put that together. Mm-hmm. So what was the the kind of, you know, mentality and, you know, maybe confidence or something that someone for that was either a flight director or a flight controller like yourself kind of had to have? Was it, was that kind of, did you receive training for that stuff or was that more? No, the kind of thing you had to be, you had to be born with. Um, let me see if I can find something here. Ay, ay, ay. In one of my, one of my talks, mm-hmm. I point this out. I write my talks down so I don't ever forget. <laughs> um, you know, there's three ways to make talks: either right off the top of your head, or bullets, mm-hmm. 
verbatim. My talks are verbatim. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I have everything. If I need to change something, I know how to. I, I can change it that way. If I have to adjust time, I can adjust time. I can't do it in my head. Like Newt Gingrich was pointed out, he gave a talk to the press club one time, and this young reporter came running up to him. He said, and re- requesting a, gee, that was a great speech. Can I have a copy of your talk? <clears throat> and Newt looked at the kid and he said, he says there is no copy. He says, they asked me for an hour talk. I gave him an hour talk. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Comprehensible. Uh, let me see what I said here. Uh, part of the things I've said, and this is apropos to what you, uh, the excitement of the Apollo lunar landing missions during those golden days were heady times, especially for those of us be fortunate enough to be in the front lines. Mm-hmm. Back then, we were young, we were fearless, and we were ready to go to the moon because, after all, no one had ever told us young engineers we could right. successfully and somebody on the moon. And Chuck Dietrich, one day, he told me, he says, he was asked, uh, uh, no, he says, curiously, some people other wonder how we pulled it off, the hoax, that is, and I always say, let them keep wondering. And when asked, how do we do it? The response of Retrofire Officer Chuck Dietrich was succinct. It was done by a bunch of smart guys who could think straight. Yeah. We were very aggressive personalities back in those days. You know, there's, 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 I found later in life, there are three distinct types of personalities. You have a passive person, you have an assertive person, and you have an aggressive person. Huh. We were all aggressive. Really? We didn't really? care what you thought. We were right. <laughs> the assertive person worries about how you receive what I'm asking you to do. Okay. That's care about the other person, how they feel. There's a way to word stuff. You get people to do what you want without pissing them off. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> we were just aggressive. Yeah. Uh, it turns out in later life, it turns out that doesn't carry over into regular <laughs> life. Yeah. When you, interrupt, you interrupt people and you want to put yourself forward all the time and your ideas are always correct and nobody else's is. And you mm-hmm. have room for all that. It's amazing how you, but that's what it took. That's what you needed, there huh? There was none of that political correctness back in those days. Right. The only guy we couldn't tell off was Chris Kraft. He would fire us. He was so autocratic. But everybody else, including the flight directors, we could and, and, the, and the astronauts, we could disagree with them. Uh-huh. As we don't think that's right. But if you want to do it, go ahead. Wow. But that's interested in psychology. Mm-hmm. And now, and I saw it all change on shuttle, where uh, uh, career ladders became more important in getting the job done. PC, everything became PC. Hmm. If I, I watched one in, my, in this job I had in between, I watched this engineer get up and try to defend a mission rule or a pre a pre uh, pre thought out course of action if something happened, mm-hmm. a mission rule. Try to plan pre plan as much as possible. And he's trying. He's got up to defend an addition of a mission rule, the upcoming mission, shuttle mission. And one of the managers is sitting on the board listening to him. He says, no, way I got to do that. And the guy says, okay, sat down. Wow. Different. Yeah. 
totally different. Interesting how things change. Well, you know, bureaucracies have a life of their own. Uh-huh. Uh, NASA became a bureaucracy through Apollo and uh, Skylab and Apollo Soyuz. And, and, and so what happened was you got the shuttle and, and, and I saw it happen. And career ladders became more important than, than anything else. Uh, and that's why we ran into problems on shuttle, mm-hmm. in my view. Um, and, 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 and what happened after, when, when Apollo was finished, was terminated, Congress had decisions to make. They could either cancel NASA, because NASA was created to, to, to uh, create a huge project and follow it through and make it successful. Mm-hmm. Or they could give it a different pr- program of equal size. So they could continue with the with the with the uh, bureaucracy that had been formed in, or they could do nothing. Yeah, they, they did nothing. Hmm. And bureaucracies are created to survive, and that's what happened. Yeah, man. Okay, so Whatever. can you walk me through the Apollo thirteen and your role in that, and maybe how this whole you know how that culture kind of applied to this to that you know emergency? Well, let's just put it this way. Um, I remember giving a talk to an IT group in Chicago, and I, I and it really I didn't prepare for the question, but the question was, um, I don't know if I have it here. The question was. Um, how long did it take to make all the decisions that we had to make on Apollo 13? Uh-huh. And I finally got around to doing that, and it was less than a day. Wow. Less than eight hours. We had every major decision. I, I, can't, I don't have a slide here. Every major decision that we had to make was were all made in that short of time. Incredible. Well, that, yeah, here's the Apollo 13 decision timeline. 55, 54, 53, the tank exploded. And um, let's see, 66, 63 hours, 79. I would say it was a day. Mm-hmm. We had it all we had it all thought out. Yeah. We, I mean, as a team, engineering and flight operations people together. Yeah, it wasn't just it wasn't just flight operations people like myself. Uh, although we were the executors, mm-hmm. you know, we had to execute whatever procedures they came up with. So um, at least you could know that that the decisions were made very quickly. They were so obvious that we we couldn't fire the big engine because it was probably hit by the panel that blew off the service module. Mm-hmm. So we had to use the lunar module to set. Descent engine, which is not as par- as powerful as the big engine at the aft end of the uh, of the service module, it was bing, bing, bing. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. We we're going to go around the moon. Uh, we had to do a we had to do a burn that put us in a free return. Back Apollo thirteen was the first mission we didn't have a free return, which meant if the big engine didn't fire to put us in lunar orbit, we would just go around the moon and come right back to the Earth. Mm-hmm. Because of lighting considerations at the landing site, they had to change the trajectory so that we were not free return uh, in case the big engine didn't work. 
Oh, okay, I see. So we had to do a we had to do a, a, a when we when the decision was made to go around the moon and come right right back to Earth to a burn engine to put us on a non free return uh, on a free return trajectory that is intersecting the Earth. Yeah. We actually had we didn't do it. We would have been twenty thousand miles out of nowhere. Man. <laughs> so yeah. And then when the decision came down, we needed we didn't have enough consumables left in the to, to use in the lunar module. We had to speed up the return. We did another burn to speed up the return. Uh-huh. Amazing, man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what was my job? Well, as I said, my job included the cryogenics uh, 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 stored in the service module of the uh, spacecraft. And I don't know what came over me, but it turns out it, 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 47 hours into the mission, we had a problem with the uh, quantity readout from oxygen tank number two. Now, these are cryo. These are like liquid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's no big deal because we had the two oxygen tanks, or two hydrogen tanks, and they were plumbed together. We just opened the valves on both tanks so they would feed at the same time. Okay. And we had a procedure developed that allowed us to turn the heaters off in a tank that was getting out of balance too much, too high. And uh, we had a procedure so we would use the tank that was feeding too much, um, turn it off, and feed the higher tank down to they were within 2.5% of each other. Okay. And that was the mission rule. Mm-hmm. So it was just a simple little thing. Yeah. So we didn't care. I mean, we could always, if, if, uh, if we were within those... Uh, uh, requirements. Uh, then, if it, if we lost any of the instrumentation on one tank, we could infer what the bad tank was by looking at the good tank because they were they were identical and coming down together. Right, smart. So we, that had happened. So forty seven hours. Who knows why the maybe a solder joint came loose? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Probably was more of the what happened on pre launch when we overheated the tank. Yeah. Um, anyway, so at 49 hours, we said, "Ah, let's try another stir." So there were two little fans. I should, I should have told you that where there was a heater core tube and a fan at each end, and uh, we would turn the fans on to homogenize the uh, material in the in the tank. Uh-huh. What happened was in zero gravity, the cryogenic material would stratify in different densities, uh-huh. and the the uh, the uh, the transducer that was reading those quantities was this full diameter tank would get faked out. Oh. So we would turn the fan on to stir it up and make it homogenize it so we get an accurate reading. Uh-huh. That's called sticking the cryos. Uh, after that, they took the fans out, took all the wiring out, and said, We don't need that. We'll just shake the spacecraft up a little bit and that'll take care of you. <laughs> so <laughs> these things go away when you don't think you need them anymore. Yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, so what happened was, at 49 hours, they decided, well, let's try it one more time. They they turned the fans on in oxygen tank number two one more time to see if uh, maybe the the uh, reading came back. It didn't. So um, they let it go and uh, didn't do another stir until, what was the time? And we were in lunar orbit, 90 hours? I can't remember. I can't remember when we stirred the cryos. <sighs> I'm going to have to remember this anyway. <laughs> um, 55 hours. Okay. 
about 55 hours in the mission. Uh, and the plan was, was the crew would stir the cryos after they woke from their sleep period every day. Uh-huh. Part of the post-sleep checklist, little things you got to do, housekeeping things. And they would turn the crowd, the fans on, all four of them, 2H2, 2O2, and stir the cryos. And we dutifully on the ground would note the correct, accurate readings and plot it to make sure that that the uh, that the quantity was being uh, utilized at, at at a rate that would get us through the mission safely. Mm-hmm. The consumables was very uh, very important subject, obviously. Yeah. So we did that, and uh, and for some reason, I decided before I got off shift, before the crew went to went to sleep. Uh, began a sleep period one hour during the last hour of my eight-hour shift. Right. And then they would sleep, and, and the next shift of flight controllers would babysit the spacecraft until the crew finished their sleep period. And the last hour of their sleep period, and we've moved them through the post-sleep housekeeping things would be done. Right. And let it, what happened while they were sleeping and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then the the uh the next shift would come on and 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 um um and perform the uh duties for the day anyway and just for some reason i being a good flight controller i i wanted more data so you know back in those days we hand plotted stuff and we had slide rules which i still have mine yeah this uh, uh, computers were just barely coming online yeah the, Computers we had with big 360-75s mainframes down on the first floor that IBM sold us to do all the trajectory work and, and data processing work. I see. We didn't have, if we want to get, and, and all the, all the uh, consoles are all hardwired. Every light, everything was hardwired. If oh, you wanted to change something, it took forever. <laughs> so not now. Now they're all workstations. Yeah. You can figure it any way you want to. Right. So anyway, so I said, well, I just want more data before I go home. So I asked the crew to do, uh, and you'll hear that in the air-to-ground voice transcript. It's part of my book. Mm-hmm. Hear all that. I asked uh, the flight director, Gene Kranz, I said, before the crew goes to sleep, I'd like to give me a sterile for tanks. And uh, they did, and then a the tank blew up. Um. <laughs> And I felt terrible about it. Of course, my job was to recognize what the hell happened. Yeah. Which, wow, because it was disbelief that tanks don't blow up. They right. just don't. They're, they're solid titanium, and they don't fail. But it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that. There was a uh, the wiring in the uh, in the tanks was all scorched, and cracked, and they were twisted pair. So it didn't take much of a jiggle for the two wires to short out. And a spark was created, and a raging fire ensued, and in seconds, that was the end of everything. Yeah. So, and it was the last hour of my shift. It tur- and I, I suffered psychologically from that, because we flight controllers, we're not taught to be that way, but it's, it's, imp- it's implied. Yeah. have to be perfect. And I wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And it bothered me. And it turns out that if I hadn't asked for that stir then, and it didn't occur until after the crew had turned on the lunar module using up all the consumables, 
or they were down on the lunar surface, or they had they, they went they they went to pull out the lunar module on the way to the moon, mm-hmm. and it had, they couldn't pull the lunar module out. Yeah, because of space, they were just flopping around. And it turns out it couldn't have been a better time for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Something made me ask. Something made me ask for an extra serve. If I hadn't done that, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what what would have happened? So was that? The old saying is, once you feel badly about something, no good deed goes unpunished. Is the old saying? Yeah. Well. Turns out that it was a good deed, and I didn't have to punish for it. Yeah. So, I mean, was that comforting later to kind of realize that? Oh, it took a long time. Yeah. 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 I I, uh, I had uh, some bad dreams about that, and it's all part of the neurosis of being trying to be perfect. Oh man. Um, the uh, you know the dreams that you remember uh, are waking dreams, mm-hmm. not dreams that occur while you ram and all that. The waking dream is the last thing you dream, and you remember it. And uh, <clears throat> I would relive the damn thing. Man. I'd wake up, I mean, it, waking dream, I, it, it happened all over again, the tank, blah, 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 and I slunk off the console, and and it, this went on for two weeks. Wow. Every morning. And uh, one morning at the end of the two-week period, it always reminds me of learning to drink scotch. It took me. <laughs> To learn to drink scotch by having a scotch once a day. This <laughs> guy said, "That's what you ought to do yeah. if you want to learn scotch." And I went, it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I had this dream. Once I said, "Oh no, here it comes again!" And uh, so we asked for the stir the tank. Uh, the fire occurred in the tank. I could see it was it, and I was making all the right calls. I said, "We got to pull the breakers, the heater breakers on panel two twenty six. We got to do this. Got to do that." Looks like we. And it looks like the tank blew up. I did everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. The end result was exactly the same. I never had the dream again. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whew, man. It fixed me. Wow. Yeah, that is crazy. That yeah, the the effects that that would have on you. And I mean, it's just so. Because I thought I was going to be perfect. Remember. Yeah. It was my fault. <laughs> I thought I was be perfect. But I mean, was it was it really your fault? It was kind of inevitable that that would have happened. It was just a random. Oh, it was guaranteed it was going to happen. Yeah. See, the fan wiring that it was attributed to, I don't know if you understand what twisted pair is. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're small gauge wires because there's little fans. Yeah. And the wires are twisted around for support. They weren't shielded. And when we did this, if you read up on the failure, the, the engineers on the ground burnt the crap out of that tank. Yep. They raised the temperature in the tank on two occasions, so over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that hot. And it charred. And they duplicated the failure on post-mission after they took all the data, the fine-tuned data we could get after the mission. Uh-huh. Every nano sent a second of data and recreated everything. And it what says it, uh, it the, the wire. I don't know if I picture of it here. Um, I have a I have a talk. I give the anatomy of the failure. Oh, <laughs> everything you could ever want to know. Yeah. Uh, where is picture of the wires? 
I guess I don't have it in this one. Uh, anyway, it was a twisted pair. And uh, the, the, the uh, Teflon um, insulation was cracked, wide cracks in the wires. It wouldn't have taken much, and it didn't take much. If, it, if I hadn't asked for the extra stair, it probably could have occurred when they woke up. They did their post, or maybe not. Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't have happened until they turned on the lunar module and used up, started using up that, all the precious consumables. Mm-hmm. It could have happened when they were on the ground. Yeah. But it probably could have docked. Yeah. If he could have docked, they would have died. Man. So how long after the explosion did, did you make the call to not land on the moon? Well, that was part of the mission rules. Once, once uh, uh, Gene Kranz, the flight director, affected the mission rules, all I had to say was, uh, it looks like we've lost two fuel cells. We ain't laying on the moon. Okay. <laughs> I didn't say that. All I had to do was report on the system. Kranz reported then on the implication of that, even though we all knew the implication that you don't land with two out of three fuel cells dead, half of all your electrical equipment dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not doing it. <laughs> I see. So that was just the protocol. You guys all knew that it was not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you can hear it on the, uh, you can hear it on the, uh, on the intercom loop traffic. You, mm-hmm. You'll hear me still. Yeah. So it was about 20 minutes before the, it, uh, we all, Franz and I, because we were talking about it all, uh, it became very clear that, you know, the old saying that denial is not just a river in Egypt. Because mm-hmm. uh, everybody was in denial, that, uh, especially Kranz was in denial. So was I. But 20 minutes was over. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the mindset you needed was that, you know, you were in denial that you guys were going to fail, right? No, I thought it was just a, a funny with the instrumentation system like it was on uh, Apollo 12. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we'd solve everything with a switch flip like we did on Apollo 12. Yeah. It's going to happen here. Yeah. It's, it was, uh, and it was the last hour of my shift. That's the reason I called my, my little Apollo 13 talk the longest hour. Was it, you know, take off on the movie title. And it was just the last hour. I was ready to go home. Yeah. Anyway, so it worked out pretty well because uh, the, the, relieving shift glenn lunny's black team had already come on board over an hour a half hour ahead of time oh. and overlapped we overlapped it so clint burton who was relieving ecom for me had already read the console log he already was totally up to speed what we were doing good and uh we already had other people coming in so it i went home yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i went down and looked at data and i saw the uh the fire in the tank with that real uh, 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 fine tooth uh, day that we had coming in. Yeah. And uh, it was all there. Man. Damn. Well, Cy, this is well, awesome. Time. Yeah. I love hearing this story from you. It's, it's really uh, awesome. It's, you'll, you'll, if you get the book, make sure it's got the CD with it. If you're buying a used book, mm-hmm. the CD is really important. Yeah, I cannot wait to check that out. Yeah, so okay, so just so we know, so everyone listening, um, your book is Apollo Ecom, uh, Journey of Journey a Lifetime. Of yeah, right. and that's, I mean, is it, uh, is it on Amazon right now? Is it available? 
You, yeah, you, you can probably find a used copy of the hardback, or you can find the softback, uh, which is what we printed afterwards. We print on demand that way. Yeah. I don't, you don't understand how that works, but there's a machine. You put the files in one end, and a book comes out the other end. It's totally <laughs> But it's it's the softback version. Uh-huh. It's up to been updated a little bit. Uh, that's the one you get. They all have the uh, the uh, CD with it, which has got stuff on it you would never find anywhere else. Nice. Uh, let's see what else came out out of that. And and and, and Amazon should have it. Uh, if not, you can always contact. Uh, um, where did you get your copy? Do you know? I, I saw it on Amazon. That's where I got mine. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. can find it on Amazon. Uh, they're not expensive on Amazon. It's, it's, it's softback. But yeah. make sure it's used that it's got the CD because you're you're going to miss off a lot. What what happens is if I tell an anecdote uh, where I got into an argument with somebody like another flight director, it's backed up on the, on the uh, CD, the actual intercom voice traffic where we have the argument so oh, awesome oh yeah i had one case where i couldn't get the flight director it was a fairly new flight director <clears throat> to do i wanted to get asked the crew a question that was one of the hot spots for us they never the flight directors always had this excuse let's not bother the crew right now mm-hmm. and i'm telling you as a systems guy if i have a funny and i need to know something because i haven't got the information on my console i need to know it yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Let's not bother the crew now, because you will hit my hot button in a second. <laughs> and 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 this guy, who's a fairly new flight director, and he he wouldn't listen to me. Huh. And we got an hour behind in the flight plan because of him not understanding what I was asking him to do, and he refused to say, "Come up here and show me." He wanted to, people do that. What to do is they ask you a question, that gives them a little information, and then they'll ask another question. They still don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We could have done it in five seconds just showing or drawing. Yeah. He was he had that ego problem. Oh, no. And I finally, I, I, after, it was Apollo 15, and Dave Scott called down. He says, oh, you want me to do that now? Now we're an hour behind in the flight plan because we wouldn't ask him if he had done that procedure, which... I had no insight to, and you'll see in the book. Anyway, so Jeez. I was I was living, and yeah. my console was just down down one tier and off to the side a little bit from the flight director console. So I could just get up from the console, lean over his, which was up a little bit from mine, and talk. Yeah. And I got up from my console, and I looked at him, and I said, Windler, one of these days you're going to hurt somebody with that attitude. Ooh. And he came over the top of the console at me. <laughs> Oh my gosh! See, that's how we were back in those days. Yeah. Oh man, I can't wait to check out that CD. Okay, that's sweet. Keep telling your boss at work if that's what you get that he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, <laughs> and he want to leave. Whew. Anyway, you'll you'll see a lot of that, and 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 I back that up. I had one of my back room guys try. I wanted people to understand how difficult it was being a front room flight controller because. Sometimes you had people giving you inputs left and right on the intercom, mm-hmm. and they were bad. And you had to say, I'm not going to do that. And my, my, one of my backroom guys violated that. He's telling me, give me bad data. He said, you got to do that. You got to do that. I said, I'm not doing that. And it was really difficult. And I backed it up. With, there's, I had that on voice, too. Yeah. Every group that we talked on in the control center was being recorded. 
in what we call the voice station. Uh-huh. Big 24-track tape. Yeah. So I needed to have some uh, dubs, as we call it. I just have to specify the GMT times I wanted and the and the actual uh, uh, loop nomenclature I wanted, like uh, uh, systems engineering or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would produce the tapes. And I've got... <laughs> Yeah. Like I said, my friend said, I think I'll throw the book away and keep the CD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so awesome that all this stuff was recorded like that. It's great for, you know, but every, people. Yeah. But the master is gone now. Really? Some, somebody either destroyed or most of those uh, voice tapes are gone. Man. The, the uh, communication tapes. Too bad. Yeah, really. Yeah. Can't, can't go back. True. But you can in uh, in my book because I I saved a lot of stuff. In fact, the original tapes from uh, from uh, my console Paul thirteen are in the uh, if they're still there they're in the uh, the uh, uh, Cosmosphere. No, uh, the one in Seattle. Um, oh God, Cosmosphere is in Hutchinson, Kansas, and the one. The, the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Oh, they have they have, uh, they have the original tapes that I sold them, mounted, oh. sold. Nice. Yeah, well, it, it exists. Yeah. That's nice. But anyway, uh, get that. Get um, my book. Get uh, uh, the Cox Murray book. Mm-hmm. How how he did it, and that uh, I think I told you the Triple E, I Triple E. Uh, 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 a piece they did on Houston. We have a solution. Oh, uh, if you want, I've had the link to that. But they said that was the most. It is the most visited link that the IEEE ever had. Wow! One of their members did a did a project, and he did a Paul thirteen coverage mm-hmm. story. It is so well done. Wow. It is. Really, it's uh, Houston. We have a we have a solution. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I want to check all that stuff out. You have everything you know. You need to know, and it's. And I'm, I'm not recommending any astronaut books. Yeah, cool. And and I'll have links to your uh, to your book and your website, ApolloEcom.com, so people can check out all that yeah. stuff and learn yeah, more about you. I just renewed it. My uh, my webmaster. He said, you know, I, have, I haven't looked at that in 10 years. And after he did all those five, six pages of things, yeah. he says, but you're not using the right tools anyway. The tools now are, are far in advanced. And I said, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> people no, have the website. You'll yeah. be able to stuff. It looks cool. I love I, it. All the animation and stuff, the flash animation. Wanted, yeah. You wanted 800 bucks to update the website. It's not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to. <laughs> so, Oh man! Cool. Well, it, it's the way it is, and of course, you know. Then I went on and did uh, after Apollo went on did uh, did Skylab for a year, and then Apollo Soyuz, which was a which was a, a real experience with the Russians. Yeah, yeah. I, I told everybody when I came back. I spent two weeks over there getting understanding how they did business, and and I came back and I told everybody. I says they may be white. But they're not like us. <laughs> <laughs> not like us. They don't wow. think like us. Don't. I mean, 
I mean, they were so cautious about what they said back in those days. The Soviet Union. Uh-huh. And I like to characterize it. He asked one of the Soviet engineers what time it is. He goes like this. He says, what do you want to know? Why do you want to know? <laughs> wow. They don't do, they didn't do anything. What do you got to trade? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Interesting. Huh. They were just, it was really, it was, I wrote a story about that when I got back. They're just not like us. Man. They couldn't understand why when they came over here for us to train them in how our system worked spacecraft and control center i remember I, and i was the lead guy so i had, i did a lot of the overview stuff and i'm just showing him the uh the inside of the spacecraft and all the switches and just one guy in the front because we had an interpreter said why do you have so many switches and then it dawned on me because they don't have switches they have switches like that at all in the soyuz everything was done from the ground so i said oh now i understand i says when we design our spacecraft we designed it with the man in the loop. Uh-huh. When you designed yours, the man is out of the loop. It's all ground. Huh. Oh, okay. Couldn't understand why we had all these switches. Wow. Very interesting. So just a Everything. completely different way of doing it. Oh, yeah. Everything was done on the ground. I didn't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> But I understand now it's a lot better, but uh, still... Uh, that was really a revelation for everybody. Yeah. Man of the loop, no man of the loop. <laughs> oh, now we say crew. Yeah, what's your, what's your genders? Yes, yes, yes. I still can't do it. We have a crude spacecraft or a manned spacecraft. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> crude. Okay, yeah. anything else you want to know? I'm... No, this is great. I mean, okay. thank you. Yeah, we've been talking for over an hour. I appreciate your time. That's yeah, I'm I'm good. I'll have all the links to everything and, and everything. So appreciate it, Cy. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, good luck. Let me know if you get any more questions. Will do. Well, have a good one, all right? Yeah. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you go. Told you it was awesome. Cy was so fun to talk to and hear him share these stories from actually being there in Mission Control during the Apollo missions. It's crazy. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, thanks for listening to part two of the 50th anniversary moon landing series that I'm doing here at Curiosityness. Uh, next week is part three, or next in just a couple days, part three is coming out. Oh boy. And uh, part three I have on David Chudwin, and he was one of the only teenagers at the time that had NASA press credentials. So he was literally there for the launch of Apollo 11, saw the whole thing, got to interview the astronauts and talk to a bunch of people. So uh, it's a really fun episode. I think you're definitely not going to want to miss. But that's it. If you like this episode, feel free to share it. I would really appreciate it if you shared it actually with your friends, your family. You can do it in person and just use your uh, mouth box and say something to them. Or you can do it electronically over social media. If you do that, feel free to tag me and uh, then I can reshare your stuff or thank you. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Curiosityness Podcast. And you can send me an email, Travis at Curiosityness.com. And that's it. Thanks again for listening and see you guys in part three for the moon landing 50th anniversary series. Goodbye.